We will be in Ecclesiastes 7. You can open there. I'm gonna read uh, about a guy, pretty incredible guy. His name is Fran Selak. He's a Croatian music teacher. Listen to his life. In 1962, a train carrying Selak jumped the tracks and plunged into an icy river, killing 17 passengers. Selak managed to swim back to shore, suffering hypothermia, shock, bruises, and a broken arm, but very happy to be alive. One year later, Selak was on a plane traveling from Zagreb to Rijeka when a door blew off the plane and he was sucked out of the aircraft. A few minutes later, the plane crashed, killing the passengers. Selak woke up in a hospital. He had been found in a haystack and had only minor injuries. How awesome is that? Oh my goodness. In 1966, he was riding on a bus that went off the road into a river. Seems to be a common theme. Four people were killed, but not Selak. He suffered only cuts and bruises. In 1970, he was driving along when his car caught fire. He managed to stop and get out just before the fuel tank exploded and engulfed the car in flames. In 1973, a faulty fuel pump sprayed gas all over the engine of another of Selak's cars while he was driving it, blowing flames through the air vents. How would you like that? His only injury? He lost most of his hair. His friends started calling him lucky. Some called him baldy. In 1995, he was hit by a city bus in Zagreb, but received only minor injuries. In 1966, in 1996, excuse me, he was driving on a mountain road when he turned a corner and saw a truck coming straight at him. He drove the car through a guardrail, jumped out, landed in a tree and watched his car explode 300 feet below. He was 67 years old, right? Yeah, okay. How does this story end? June, 2003, at the age of 74, Selak bought his first lottery ticket in 40 years and won more than $1 million. How cool is that? You read stories like that and you're amazed because we know life doesn't normally work that way, right? It doesn't, normally people don't keep having, you might have that once, but that's about it. So when someone has a life that you're like, wow, that is something extraordinary because you keep seeming to defy the odds of life. You keep getting things that you shouldn't get, right? So we all kind of have that. Like we have in our brains the way life should work for people. But the problem with that is life is weird. It doesn't always work that way for people, okay? So this is the problem that Solomon sees and he begins to address and he talks about it and kind of um, gives probably the most strange text in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is the strangest, Bible, strangest book in the Bible, okay? So this is a strange text. I'll tell that right from the front. It's a huh, listen to it. Chapter seven, verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. 
There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. (laughs) Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you not die before your time? It is a good thing that you take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Did you catch that text? You should be scratching your head right now because every commentary I read on it, people just scratch their heads like, what is this? And I read a whole bunch trying to figure out like, what do people believe this is actually trying to say? And no one agrees because it's just, it's what in the world? So here's what I think Solomon's trying to say based on the book and based really on its place in the Bible. So I'm gonna try to work through it and then give you what I think is the point of this text. And it's really the point of the Bible. And if you don't get this, you don't understand scripture, all right? So first of all, verse 15, Solomon says this, I've lived this life and I've seen something. And he says, I've seen righteous people die being righteous, doing the right thing. And I've seen wicked people get ahead, prolong their life, do well because of their wickedness. What he's saying is life doesn't make sense. Like life is weird, right? So every religion has this as their core, karma. That's what every religion has. It's karma. If you do these things, life's gonna work out. And if you don't do these things, life won't work out, right? So you guys know what karma is? I'm guessing what comes around goes around, right? That's the idea, the circle, that's karma. Um, If you hurt someone, then you're gonna be hurt. That's karma. Now we're in church, so most of us would say, hey, I don't believe in karma. That's new age, Eastern mysticism. No, I don't believe in karma at all. But if you look at your own life, what you actually believe, I think you believe in karma. So if something bad happens to someone you think is wicked, what do you think? They had it coming, right? What is that? Karma, right? So we say, man, I don't believe in karma. But if you actually dig down in your own life, man, you're playing with fire, you can get burned. That's karma, right? Play the bull, you get the horns. We have all these sayings that if you actually evaluate them, we're just saying the same thing, which is a different way. We don't call it that, but we actually believe in karma. Now, if karma is real, then I have a list of people it's missed. Don't you? We totally do. Right? So what Solomon is saying is this, no way, karma does not work, verse 15. That thing is broken. Just watch the news. Watch evil people get ahead. Like how do they keep getting ahead? Why doesn't karma get them? Okay? If you believe in karma, then I would say this, go up and walk the halls of Dornbecker, the children's hospital in Portland. And you see little kids pulling behind them their chemo bags and you think there's no way they deserve that, right? To me, last time I was in Dornbackers, I just went, oh my goodness, hardest place in the world for me to be, seeing kids hurt, right? So Solomon would say, man, no way. Karma does not work. I've seen righteous people doing the right thing die. I've seen evil people by their evil deeds get ahead. Karma doesn't work. 
Like it's broken. But each one of us, in the way that we live our life, we actually live by karma. That for every person you have scales, whether you want to admit it or not, you have these scales that you kind of think, well, this is what kind of person he is and this is what he or she deserves. And when it doesn't quite fit, we're like, why'd they get that? Or man, that's too bad, right? We all have it. Like the way that we actually live out and think about life is this kind of reciprocity. Uh, it, it's all karma, okay? Like we have this saying, when someone gets something we think they don't deserve, we call them a lucky devil. Man, that lucky devil. What did we say in that moment? Yeah, they didn't deserve that. We didn't say a lucky angel. We said a lucky devil. They don't deserve that. This is not how life should work. So Solomon agrees. Karma's broken. Here's his solution. Verse 16. Be not overly righteous. <laughs> Why should you hurt yourself? Be not overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Verse 17, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Have you ever said to that, that to your kid when he's leaving in his car? Hey, son, bud, don't be too wicked. Just a little wicked, right? I mean, this is, you just say, what in the world is Solomon trying to tell us in these crazy verses? What is he saying? It sounds like almost on one side, he's saying, hey, don't be on fire for Jesus, but don't be on fire for Satan either. Be lukewarm, right? It almost sounds like that's what he's saying. But you got the rest of the Bible saying, well, that's probably not actually what's being meant by this. So I'm gonna try to unpack really quick the wicked side and then we'll spend some time on the righteous side because I think it's pregnant with what the Bible's all about, right? So he says, don't be too wicked. And I think you can quickly see what he's trying to say by skipping down to verse 20. Look what it says. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Let me give you what the Bible thinks about humans. It's found in Romans chapter three. If you spent any time in Sunday school, you probably know this verse, but this is the Bible's evaluation of humanity. Romans 3.10. None is righteous. No not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the Bible's evaluation of humanity, exactly like Solomon is saying. So here's his point, I think. Every one of us has individual brokenness that we've all blown it this week, last week, this month, whatever. We all have this kind of fracturedness in our personality. 
And what it can lead people to say is this, well, since I'm this way, then I'm just gonna be it. I'm just gonna go down the rabbit hole of that sin. I'm gonna become that thing. And what Solomon is saying is this, don't do that. Just because you're broken, just because you failed, just because you're that way, doesn't mean you just allow yourself to be sucked into total wickedness. Don't fall into that trap. Because he says, you'll destroy yourself. And it's not karma getting you. It's just the facts of life, right? If you engage in dangerous, stupid behavior, guess what's most likely to happen to you? Dangerous, stupid things. Go sign up for life insurance and look how many questions they ask you about the kind of life you live because they know this, people that engage in dangerous, stupid behavior die. And we don't wanna pay a bunch of money for that, okay? So if you like to golf in a lightning storm, teeing off a hill with a five foot metal driver, you're gonna go back to the future, right? You're getting it. And that's not karma, that's just the facts. You're engaging in that. So Solomon's just warning you. Hey, I know you're broken. No one does right all the time. I get that. Don't fall down that rabbit hole, okay? That's that side. But the other side is more fascinating. Verse 16, be not overly righteous. Now, what could that mean? Well, I listed out from commentaries I looked at a whole bunch of these where they say, maybe it means this, but no one's like, this is what it means. So I'm gonna give you all those. And then I'm gonna give you what I think Solomon's actually trying to poke us to understand, and it is the meaning of the Bible, okay? So don't be overly righteous, could be number one. Don't be the super spiritualizer. Here's what this person does. You're like talking to him or her, and you're like, man, my back has been killing me for like three days. And they answer, do you know who else's back hurt them for three days in a grave for your sins? You know that person? Okay, in that moment, do you feel loved and edified and exhorted? Or do you want to physically harm them? Okay, so Psalm is just giving you a warning. Don't be that guy. Don't be the one that's just constantly trying to super spiritualize everything. Don't be that guy, right? Number one. Number two, don't be the nitpicker. Okay, the overly righteous nitpicker is someone who's always trivial. They're not worried about the big things that matter. Jesus, sin, Bible, creation. They're not worried about those things. They're always like picking at you on like the side points, the margins, like King James Version only. That's the only Bible you can read. Ever heard that? Oh, I have conversations with people on this. I'm like, you know what? Don't be a lazy legalist. If you really wanna read the Bible God wrote, learn Hebrew, learn Aramaic, and learn Greek because everything else is a translation, okay? Some good, some bad. King James Version is a great translation. It's not the only translation, right? It's just, it's nuts to me. Just, this is it. This is my, you know, I'm planting down here. We're gonna fight over this. Really? There's so much bigger things to be worried about, right? Can women wear pants? Well, sure they can, right? Gotta only homeschool your kids. Can't drink caffeine, right? Can't eat a steak that's raw. It's got blood in it, Matt. Right, it does. And it's so good. I love it that way. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me, right? Okay. You drive a Mercedes, you're a sinner. You drive a Volkswagen, you're a saint. Yeah, okay. Right, just this crazy, nitpicky, self-righteous, just are you kidding me, right? People like that 
are the descendants of the very people that killed Jesus. Do you know that? Weren't they always nitpicking him? Don't you know what day it is? You can't heal on this day. Don't you know who you're eating with? You can't eat with those kind of people. Don't you know, whatever it is, they're constantly nitpicking him. And Jesus says this to him, it's Matthew chapter 22. He says, you nitpick about tithe and these little things, but you neglect the weightier matters of mercy and justice and compassion. Jesus was saying, you're you're nitpickers. You know what a nitpicker is? It's combing through somebody's hair and picking out the lice eggs, right? Like some kind of freakish monkey, like, "Mm -hmm." do you really wanna be that guy? Right, Solomon is warning, don't do that. Don't do that. Like personally, I'm reading through the Bible right now. I'm in, I'm in 2 Kings. And last week I read about Elisha healing Naaman, which is a fantastic story. It's so good on so many levels. But at the end of it, Naaman is so taken with Yahweh that he comes to Elisha and says, I want to worship Yahweh now. Naaman was an Assyrian general who did not live in Israel. So he said this to to Elisha. He says, can I dig up some of your ground and put it on my donkey and take it back to my house and then make a mound at my house so I can worship Yahweh? Guess what he was saying by that? He had a very pagan understanding of Yahweh. The pagans believed this, that that God's each had like a territory, right? Almost like little kings. And they, they had a territory and it was theirs. And if you wanted to worship that deity, that God, you had to actually have their ground, their territory with you. So he's, he's bringing a very pagan idea in. Now, Elisha knows God's creator of everything. But you know what Elisha does? Take the dirt, bro. Just take the dirt. That's not what's important. You worshiping Yahweh is what's important. I thought, man, that is so generous of Elisha. Are we generous like that? Like really knowing the things that matter. Jesus, I, I say this all the time. He's the deep end, right? Everything else is shallow compared to him. That's the things I'm gonna fight over and I'm gonna really, really th- think about. Don't be, I think, number two, a nitpicker. nitpicker. Number three, don't be a laborer, an overly righteous laborer. This is the person that has a Messiah complex where they understand, they see the mission of the world and it's important. And they kind of begin to take that all upon themselves like it's their job to do everything. And so it begins to look like this, like they can't buy an expensive coffee because they could save that money. Right? They got to stop taking 10 minute warm showers and just take a cold shower because it's going to save them money. They're going to buy sparkly teeth from Rite Aid, even though it's made in China with lead because it saves them a quarter. Right? Costs a lot more in dental work, but right? it's that idea that we almost take on. Now, it's great to be wise with your money, but there can be this idea almost that I become Jesus and I have to save the world. No, you partner with him and think wisely about your money, but don't be way over which is insane where you get this laboring Messiah complex, overly righteous, okay? Number four, don't be the legalist. Here's what a legalist is. A legalist says no to everything. Like you should not have a dishwasher. It's vain. Jesus did not have a dishwasher and neither should you. He washed his dishes, right? You should not. Don't um, drink caffeine. It's a drug, Christian crank. Don't drink coffee. Like really? Oh my goodness. 
Don't play with cards. I had a guy that I, I, if I said his name, you'd all recognize it. He told me this, Matt, you should not have playing cards in your home. I'm like, really? Why not? Because first it starts out with solitaire and then it is seven feathers and a second mortgage, man. It's the way Satan gets into your life. I'm like, oh, goodness. <laughs> now I'm, I'm not doing that, man. We'll have playing cards. Thank you very much. Right? It's all that just kind of like, oh, only listen to Amy Grant, vintage Amy Grant, like the only music you can listen to. Everything else is secular and Satan will get through those drums into your head. So it's just, it's, it's the legalists. Like they have formed a new Torah, their own 613 laws that they believe this. If I keep this Torah right, then God will bless me. Then I will earn righteousness. And you're actually trying to game God. That's what a legalist does. They believe if I do all these things right, stay away from those things, do these things, then God's gonna owe me something. There is no more dangerous way to live your Christianity than that because God is in heaven and he does what he wants. And he's not gonna do what you want him to do. He's in charge. So be very careful of that. And it begins to look at, look at like God almost like this boogeyman. Like there's these unwritten rules and these taboos that look out if you make a mistake on any of these, oh no, God's gonna get me. And what a weird way to think about your heavenly father. I think it's unhealthy. And very often legalists are neurotic. On one side, they get prideful and like fool themselves when they do their Torah. And then they become anxious and stressed out and worried when they fail. And there's no joy in them. There's no joy. So don't be the overly righteous legalist. Then fifthly, don't be Ned Flanders. Who knows who Ned Flanders is? Okay. So he is the hyper fundamental neighbor of Homer Simpson. And my favorite interaction they had was this. Homer was like, hey, Ned, I haven't seen you for about a week, where you been? And Ned Flanders replied, I've been at a Christian retreat learning how to be more judgmental. I'm like, I've been to that one, man, it worked. Be careful, don't be Ned Flanders. The overly righteous, just judgmental believer. Don't be that guy. And here's how maybe it works out. I'll give you a little story, a little word picture. Let's imagine, not this church, another church. Ned is sitting in the front row. And man, he is the uber believer. He's got on the what would Jesus do necklace. He's got the voice of the martyr bracelet on. He has a King James version only Bible. It's the only way God speaks today. So I got that, right? He's got a tattoo on his arm. It's the dove descending upon Jesus, being baptized by John the Baptist. And it's got the Matthew text written in Greek on the other side. Like he's just, he's uber believer, right? He's got his notebook, his journal with four different colored pens, depending on what was being said. Was this, you know, dispensationalism? He's got it all right there, right? He's got his Bible, but he doesn't even look at it because he's got the entire thing memorized, just sitting there on his lap, just reminding people, have your Bible, man, have your Bible. He's got the no Jesus shirt on, you know the one? N-O Jesus, N-O peace, K-N-O-W Jesus, K-N-O-W peace. He's got that shirt on and he's just drinking it in. He's loving it, front row, just, oh man, the glory of it all. But it keeps getting interrupted by some guy in the back who's like groaning. And he's kind of like, like, like the, the, there's a stir in the congregation. He's like, man, who is destroying the Shekinah of God right now? And he kind of, finally, he looks back, he sees a dude back there and the guy's just got his head buried in his, hand, in his hands and he's wearing an Aussie t-shirt. He's like, what in the world? Why would you bring that into the sanctuary of 
Yahweh. He's got a hat on. He's wearing a hat in church. He cannot believe it. So he just feels led by God's spirit to pray. So he gets up and just starts praying, God, I thank you that I am so awesome. I thank you that I am not a thief like the Aussie guy back there. I thank you that I don't cuss. I don't chew. I don't go with girls that do like Aussie guy back there. I tithe. I memorize scripture. I am awesome. And I thank you for that. Amen. And the congregation is kind of like, yeah, all right, okay, yeah. And meanwhile, Ozzy dude in the back hasn't even noticed this because he's just sobbing and crying. And the only prayer he prays is this, Father, forgive me. I'm a wicked, evil man. Which one of those men is God more pleased with? You don't have to guess because I stole that story from Luke chapter 18, all right? I, I message Bibled it, right? I brought it up to modern times. That's all I did. Jesus gives the same exact story, right? And he goes, the, the Aussie t-shirt dude went away justified because that's what God's looking for. Not judgmental, overly righteous, self-fundamental Christians like, like that. He's not looking for that, okay? So be careful. I think those are all important and you can get some wisdom from them. But... I think the main truth that this is actually trying to poke us and steer us toward is this. Every religion at some level is based on karma. It's based on this idea that if you stay away from taboos and you do these things, you'll have a long life. You'll be blessed. Everyone's based on that. And if you think through your own life, that's how you actually live. God, if I'll stay away from this and I'll do these things, I'll get a long life. You know why that's in us? Because it started that way. If you go to Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve, they are told by God, they are told by God, don't eat from this tree and you'll live eternally in paradise. It's called by theologians, the covenant of works. That was the very first covenant given to humans. And that is still in all of us. I don't care where you're at in your Christian walk. That is the default of the human brain is the covenant of works. If I do this stuff or don't do these things, I'll get life in paradise for eternity. That's every religion and it's karma. It's just kind of, okay, I've got this stuff to do. The only problem with that is Genesis chapter three. That what happened in the fall was our ability to do was broken. Our doer broke. And so now, no matter where you're at in your Christian faith, there's always a bit of our brain that comes in and says, you could do more. You could do more, right? You give and you're kind and you're helpful, but then your brain comes, yeah, you didn't do that for your little brother. You failed him. You weren't there for your mother and she passed away. How are you gonna make that up, right? Your conscience comes in and just clobbers you because we all know we could be more loving, more kind, more giving, more whatever, more obedient, and so we're in this dilemma of like, ah, and that's what Solomon's actually getting at. What do you do with this dilemma? How do you solve this? This war in us, where we default to this thing that never works. It destroys you. It's bad religion. So what do we do? And he's just hitting on a theme that's in scripture. And to prove this to you, because Ecclesiastes is one of those books that's very hard to like, okay, nail down. Um, to prove this, I want you to turn to another book of the Bible. It's the book of Deuteronomy. 
and turn to chapter 30 because there you see one of the most brilliant expressions of this same idea, okay? So if you don't know what Deuteronomy is, it means the second law. It is an eight-hour sermon by Moses. That's a long message. And he goes over everything. It's just, I'm going over 40 years of ministry with you guys. He gives a second law, do all these things, don't do all these things. And then at the end of his sermon, he sings a song like every good preacher should. (laughs) But the song is, you're gonna fail. It's Deuteronomy 32. Even though I've told you all this, giving you an eight hour message, you're gonna fail. What a great song that is. You're not gonna do it, you're gonna fail and it's gonna trash you, okay? So that's Deuteronomy, brilliant book. All right, chapter 30 though is the light. It's the hope. So to give you kind of an understanding of where chapter 30 comes, Moses has been giving like, he's been given karma, religion. Do these things and be blessed. Don't do these things and be cursed. I'll just read a little bit of that. Chapter 28, verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. (laughs) What's Moses saying? If you fail, you're cursed, karma. But then chapter 30, when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse, you're not gonna do it, you're gonna be cursed. Which I have set before you and you call them to mind among all the nations where Yahweh your God has driven you and return to Yahweh your God, you and your children and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the people where the Yahweh your God has scattered you. If you're outcast or in the uttermost part of heaven, there Yahweh your God will gather you. And Yahweh your God will bring you back into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. So here's what Moses is saying. I gave you blessings and cursings. You're gonna fail. You're gonna be taken into captivity by Babylon, by the Assyrians. You're gonna be cursed. But good news, I'm faithful. I'll bring you back into the land. I'll make you prosperous. But the problem would be, well, we're just gonna do it again then. We're gonna fail again and again and again. So God, what's gonna change us? So verse six is the money verse. It's an underliner. And verse six. Yahweh, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will, I have the word will circled in my Bible, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. What Moses says is this, I gave you an eight-hour sermon, but you're gonna fail. There's coming a time when God shows his faithfulness to you and brings you back into the land and the thing that keeps you in the land and makes you able to do what God wants you to do is he changes your very heart. He circumcises your heart so that you can do it, okay? You can be righteous. 
This is a New Testament truth. Let me read one more passage for you. It's Romans chapter eight. Verse three. For God has done what the law, all those rules, that whole system, covenant of works, do this, be blessed, don't do this, be cursed, right? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. This is a mirror of the entire Old Testament. Man, law, work, that thing was tried over and over and over and over again every time it failed. Because your doer is broken. You will fail. You fail yourself. Your own little rules, your own little Torah, whatever you wrote for yourself, you can't keep it, let alone the one God has for you. You can't. So God has done what the law, that system, religion, bad religion, karma, whatever you want to call it, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Verse four, this is the key. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The righteousness that Solomon is saying, hey, this righteous thing that you're not gonna get, Romans chapter eight, verse four says, God will give it to you. That what you cannot do by earning it, by getting on the karma treadmill, the righteousness that you can never do, you can be given it by God. God will do it. That is the force. That is the direction of the entirety of scripture. This is the good news. The good news is the righteousness that we need is given to us freely by Jesus Christ. That's the Bible. Okay. So here's my question for us today. Most of us know this. This should not, this should be review, right? If you're a believer in Jesus, this should probably be a lot of review. Why, if that is the truth of scripture, do we constantly run back to karma? Do we actually live our lives according to a system that's broken and destroys us? Why do we constantly do that? Why do we judge people on karma? Why do we judge ourselves on karma? Why are we trying to game God? Why do, why do we go back to karma? Why do we leave the work of the cross of Jesus Christ, of his grace, of imputed righteousness? And why do we go back trying to earn something that we know we can't? Why do we do that? It's insane. Yet every single one of us does it. We leave the cross and hop on the treadmill of karma until it exhausts us and we fall off. And then once again, we're like, oh yeah, God's grace. Quit hopping back on that thing. Why do we do that? Right? There's no such thing as being overly righteous. That's, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't work. Right? Is righteousness a list of things you do? Or is it a state of being given to you? Which one is it? Today, as you sit here, how do you define your righteousness? Is it what you did this last week or what you did not do this last week? Is that how you define your righteousness? Why does God love you? Is it because what you did last week or did not do last week? Why is God overjoyed with you? Is it because you're the uber believer, Ned Flanders in the front? Or because you're the Ozzy Osbourne guy in the back? Why? When God looks at you, is he pleased with you? And if he is, why is he pleased with you? Those are all questions that evaluate, like, do I, do I live in karma that's gonna crush me? 
or have I lived at the cross underneath the grace of Jesus Christ that cures me and heals me and changes me, that circumcises my heart? Man, I preach this message to myself because I go back to karma all the time. Thinking God, something different, something changes about the nature of God when I go to karma. He becomes a policeman instead of my father. And it's weird and it's wrong. Don't leave the cross. His grace is sufficient. We come to this place not to rub the God genie three times so he drops wishes to us. We come to this place because God's grace has forgiven us and cleansed us and is curing us from our brokenness. That's why we come here. And we praise and we learn and we sing in response to that grace, not trying to earn something from him. That's why we're here. And we get invited to this table because he wants us here. Not because we earned a spot, not because we're varsity, because he's invited us here. He says, you're my kids. I've adopted you and I want you here because of my grace and it's sufficient. Don't go back. Don't go to karma. You are loved and accepted and you have righteousness, perfect righteousness, something the law could never do. You have it because Jesus gave it to you. That's the good news. Live in that good news. So Jesus, as we come this morning to your table of grace, As I come here, forgive me for trying to game you. For going back to a system of bad religion. That not only do I fail at, but the system comes and condemns me. Oh, may I live in Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. May I stay at your table, a table of grace, a table that you, because of your work, have given me sufficiency to sit here, a table that you want me at, a table I don't have to be worried about being kicked away from, having my seat taken. I'm there because you want me there. Forgive us, Lord, congregationally for leaving you, our sufficient one, for leaving the cross and trying to earn something that can only be given to us. Oh, help us not to do despite to the gospel of grace, but help us to sit and soak in it until our hearts are transformed by it. So may we eat and may we drink grace unearned, undeserved, righteous favor because of the finished work of the cross. And I pray this in your name, amen.